We're talking about prevailing prayer. Our key scripture is in, in James chapter 5. We're not going to turn there. Verse 16, which says, in part, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. And so the standard that God's given us to challenge us is our prayers with Him ought to accomplish much. And therefore, we ought to have confidence when we pray that our prayers are going to get answered. And the problem is most of us don't pray enough because we don't really... It's not that there's no lack of need. It's that we don't have enough confidence to really believe God's going to do it. And as I've shared with you over and over again, that if we really believed this, that God heard our prayers this room would be full on Tuesday nights. And I know not everybody can be here because it's not as if we don't have needs or if we don't have any, at least we don't know people that do, but most of us aren't here because it's not important enough to us. And I understand I've gone through that battle myself and there's some Tuesday nights I don't want to come here, but I've never been disappointed when I've come just as on Wednesday nights or any other time because when you get here and you begin to pray, see, you're never more alive, you're never stronger than when you're in prayer because you are a spirit being. And when you're in communion by the Spirit of God inside of you with the Spirit, Father of spirits, that connection brings you alive, your spirit man alive, and it animates you, and it makes you alive. Your spirit, this, your spirit man in, in you is what keeps you alive. It's not the beating of your heart. That keeps your blood flowing. But if your spirit were to leave you, the Bible says, your body's just going to cease. In fact, that's how you die is your spirit leaves your body. It says, Jesus breathed, released his spirit, and he died. Psalm 119, I says, it says, if your spirit stops, then your body dies. And so that's, what, that's why you feel more alive when you leave here than when you came, because your spirit's been stirred up. Your spirit sensitivity's been stirred up. And that's where the, that's the, he is life, and he is eternal life that's in you. And so we've been looking in Ephesians, uh, starting in verse 10. I'm not going to read through all this. And this is really talking about spiritual warfare. Having gone through all the teaching in, in Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians up till then, and having, we've shared in the beginning of this part of the discussion that back in, in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is saying goodbye to the elders for the last time that he's going to see them face to face, he prepares them that when he leaves them and his influence is directly is, has left them, that there are going to be wolves that are going to come in from the outside. Not four-legged wolves, but two-legged wolves. You understand that there are a four-legged variety that have big teeth that you can see, and then there's the two-legged kind that come in sheep's clothing. And they look like sheep, but they're really wolves. And they were coming in there to begin to bring in false doctrines to, to, to find the weak, the believers in that church and to begin to lead them off. And so what Paul was preparing for them for was there was going to be a spiritual battle for that church. And so in this letter he writes to them, he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, that you may be able to stand in the day of evil, in the evil day. And having done all to stand, and then he goes through the armor of God and he says, For as we wrestle not, he's talking about a fight, we wrestle not not with flesh and blood, but with, with principalities and power. So there's a spiritual battle that's going on, even in this room right now. It's not so strong in here because the presence of God is here strong, but there's a spiritual battle that we're, we're very seldom aware of unless you've had your eyes open to it you know, and, and you're spiritually sensitive. And yet that spiritual activity is affecting you. It's influencing you. And so, so prayer is so critical because he, he comes to the end of this discussion. Having gone through the armor of God, he says in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So the, the culmination of the spiritual battle, the purpose for having the spiritual, the armor to wear in the battle and the way the battle's fought is with prayer. It's not by getting angry because you get angry, that's in the flesh. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So when you fight your battles by getting angry, you're fighting in the flesh. The church has missed it so much because we've tried to fight some of our battles with the ballot box. And there's nothing wrong with voting for the righteous men. We shouldn't vote for righteous men and women. We should vote for people that believe in, the, in causes and things that, that are biblical. But we've... we've put so much of our, the church's money and energy into that where we are, don't, are not anointed and don't have the power and we've neglected the power that God has given us which is on our knees, which is on our knees. And in fact, it's only the battle that's on our knees that opens the door for the ballot box to work. 
And so Paul is talking about how to fight this battle. And so it's a battle that goes on in the spirit realm. And most of us are just not, not that we're not aware of it. We just go through our day not very conscious of it, not realizing it's not only affecting us, but it's affecting others around us. And it's why some things aren't happening. Now in verse 18, it says, praying always with all prayer. That word all prayer means all manner of prayer. And so what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is the Bible talks about different types of prayer, and because these different types of prayer have different purposes, they operate by different rules, and it's very important to understand which type of prayer is necessary in a particular situation, because by the very nature of those rules, that you may be operating on a set of rules for one type of prayer that don't work effectively for the type of prayer that's needed. And the most the clearest example of that is there are prayers that involve a surrendering of our will to God. One of them is the prayer of consecration. And so in that prayer, it's appropriate to say, not my will, but your will be done. It's a surrendering of our will to God. I'm finding I pray that more and more. I'll pray that throughout the day. I was even going over that during praise and worship, just preparing to come up here. And as I was praying in here during the day and even right before the service, just yielding my will to the Spirit of God so that He can do what He wants to do. And that is a very legitimate type of prayer. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden. But the essence of that prayer is, is your will be done. But then we learned last week there's a type of prayer called the prayer of faith. Because the nature of that prayer is receive something that God has made a promise to you about. It's just a, a commu- it's, it is a transaction between you and God based on a promise He's made that if you end that prayer, but if it be your will, you just undercut the very essence of receiving because that means you don't know whether it's His will or not. So if you don't know whether it's His will, how can you have confidence that He's going to provide it for you? But the very essence, the very nature, the very heart of a prayer of faith is Mark eleven twenty four that when you pray, believe you have received it. Well, if I don't know if it's God's will, I can't have confidence that I've received it. So what we've, the church has traditionally done, not so much here, is we prayed, we prayed for, for some need in our life and then ended it by, if it be thy will, and we just, took the, we just cut the heart of faith out from underneath that prayer because we've heard other people pray and we see their people places in the Bible. So it is important. That's the whole point of this. The point of this series is not to es- emphasize and go into detail about the different types of prayer, but I've spent a little bit of time on you so that you could identify what they are and why they operate by different rules. And all of that was to lead up to the type of prayer we're going to talk about tonight, which is the prayer of intercession. Whereas the prayer of faith has as its purpose my receiving something directly from God that He's promised to me. So it's just God and me. So God's will is established because I'm only praying something that I find in His Word. Because if God's made a promise to me, then His will's been settled, hasn't it? Because God's not going to promise something to me He hasn't already decided He wants me to have. So that's why if you find it in the Word and you begin to pray it, then you have, can have confidence it is God's will for me to have it. And that's critical for receiving when it comes to the prayer of faith. But the prayer of intercession is when I'm praying to God about what somebody else needs or God doing something in someone else's life or a group of people or it can be so broad as to be a nation or something like that. But it's not my asking God to do something for me. It's my asking God to do something for someone else. So to understand that, we're going to talk for a little bit tonight about what, it, what intercession means because it's kind of a spiritual term that we toss around so easily and, and I think that in some of our minds, maybe a lot of our minds, we've kind of mixed it together with, just, well, it's, just, it's, it's prayer, but it's a particular type of prayer. Now, I wish I should have done a, 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 a video or a, a, a PowerPoint thing on it, but I, I didn't think of it. Or, but the word intercede is broken down into two components. There's the prefix, which is inter, I-N-T-E-R, which means between or among two or more. So inter, intercontinental flight is flying from one continent to another continent. Interballistic missile, which is sending a missile from one continent, hopefully ours, to another continent, hopefully theirs. It's, it's, it's going from one to another, whereas intra, I-N-T-R-A, means within one. So intramural sports are teams that compete within one school. Intermural is when teams from one school go visit a team from another school. 
So inter means between two different ones, two separate entities. So that's the inter part of session. Session comes from the Latin word which means to stand or to enter. So when you combine these two together, the word intercede or intercession means to stand between two things or to go in between two different parties or two different situations. And so that's the real essence of what intercede means is I'm going to stand in between two opposing, theoretically, people or, or arguments or situations. And so, and it's important to understand that. And this is some of the scriptures that we're going to get into. So you've heard the term sometimes, it's standing in the gap. And we'll see tonight where that comes from. If you go back to the Old Testament, and, and those of you in school of ministry have, have heard me go through this before, or heard whoever may have taught a class on the Old Testament go through this before. But, but it talks about, in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as our high priest, and then it says he's according to the order of Melchizedek, and it talks about Melchizedek as a priest. And it, it compares Jesus as our high priest under the new covenant with the, with, the, with the Levi and the sons of Aaron, which were the high priests under the old covenant, under the tabernacle that we studied a, number, a little while ago on Wednesday mornings. And, and if you, in Hebrews chapter 5, it tells you what the requirements for a priest are. And it says that he is a man, has to be a man. So here's the idea. This is, I'm just going to walk you through this one example so you can kind of get a, a visual of what, a, what a, an intercessor is. So God's brought the children of Israel out of Egypt because they cried out to him. Gets them out. He has to lead them through the wilderness to get them to the promised land. And so here's the job. Here's the goal that God has. He's taking... Somewhere around two to three million rebellious, stiff-necked people who have only gotten out of Egypt because they didn't like it there and because the pressure was too great, and it was. And, and they've cried out to God to deliver them out of Egypt. So God's got them out of Egypt, and actually before they even got out, they're complaining. And His whole focus is to take them from Egypt through this dry and barren wilderness to get them over to the place he wants to set them, which is called the promised land because it's the land he promised that he would get them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's trying to lead a people that don't particularly want to go there. They just wanted to get out of where they were. And they don't like the conditions they're in. They don't like the food. They don't like the water. They don't like the temperature. They don't like what it smells like. They don't like each other. They don't like God. They don't like... Anybody know anybody like that? And so when the slightest little thing looks like it's going wrong, they start complaining and wishing they, they got back to where they had things so much better back in the flesh pots of Egypt. Of course, they forgot about the taskmasters and the whips, and they forgot about you know the living conditions, and they forgot about all that stuff that made them want to get out of there to begin with. So that's the people God's dealing with. God wants to get them over to a place to bless them. That's his goal. But they don't want to listen to him. They didn't want to come to the base of the mountain and see him. So God's called a man, Moses, and God's called him and put him in a position where God's got to, he's got to be God's intermediary to bring the people from where they are to where they want to go. So he's, you've got God on this side saying, I want him to come over here. You've got the people on this side saying, I don't want to go. I don't even like it where it is now. I want to go back to where I was. And who's in the middle? Moses. Moses is standing in the middle. He is, in, he is interceding on their behalf. And God instructed Moses to appoint his brother Aaron as a high priest. And God wants to communicate with his people and wants to enter into worship with his people. But because, because there, there's sin in them, and they're rebellious, God can't just show up and let them worship Him. 
So he implements this whole series of sacrifices that we talked a little bit about on, on Sundays a, a few months ago. But God then takes a man, Aaron, out from among the people, and God sanctifies him to represent the people to God. So Hebrews 5 says the requirement, or 7, says the requirement of a priest is that he must be among, taken out from among men. Why? Because remember he's a go-between, so that he can relate to the people. He can understand what their struggle is, so that he can represent the people to God. But he has to be chosen by God, and sanctified by God, so he can represent God to the people. You with me? Because he's, he's bridging this gap. I, I was thinking as I was getting ready. Um, we have a, a, in our, we just set our, uh, uh, we have a little deck in the back and we just set it up. We have a little gazebo we set up in there with a, so, you know, I like to, we like to sit out there maybe on a Sunday afternoon or when it's nice out or, you know, I like to read my Bible out there when it's not too cold and, and, uh, and we have a little lamp we put out there in case we want to sit out there at night. But the lamp's cord is only about three feet long. But from where we put the lamp to where the outdoor plug is, is about seven feet. So when we put the lamp down over here, get it there, stretch the cord out, it doesn't make it because the plug's over here. So I had to go down in my basement and I had to get something that would make up the gap between the lamp's cord and the outlet that's in the outside wall of the house called an extension cord. That extension cord is an intercessor. It makes up the gap that is between the end of the... See, the, the, the lamp reaches out as far as it can, but it can't reach far enough to get to the source of the power. And the source of the power can't start jumping out of that outlet, or it's going to hit everything indiscriminately, and we're all going to get electrocuted. So it needs something through which it can transmit its power to get to the place that needs it, which is the lamp. So it makes up that gap. The gap between God and His people was His people were rebellious, they were weak. God doesn't understand weakness. When you are absolute power and you are the source of power and you are the source of life, you're the source of everything, you don't understand weakness. You can't relate to it. You and I... Oh, we can relate to it. So, so God cho- had to choose a man to be high, the high priest because he could represent the weakness of the man, people to God and he had to be chosen by God and cleansed and consecrated by God so he could represent God to the people so this gap in the Old Testament could be covered so God could receive their sacrifices, God could communicate with them. But what Hebrew tells us is we have a new high priest. We have a new high priest. We have a new high priest to make up our gap. Because the problem with that high priest is they all died. And they could only make this gap up in a very, very, very small way. So what did God do? God sent His Son, all God, to take on flesh and dwell among us, John 1, 14. So that, John, so that Hebrews 4 says, and he, he was tempted in all ways as we are. Why? Because he wore flesh. The only avenue Satan has to tempt you is through your flesh once you're born again. That's the only thing that ultimately gives you trouble. That's why he likes to poke at you, try to get you envious, jealous, mad. He's poking at your flesh. That's why Paul says here, you have to understand, flesh isn't your enemy. 
Whoever just said something nasty to you today, whoever made you jealous, whoever threatened you, they're not your enemy. Satan's trying to use them because he's trying to, through them, poke at your flesh so you'll hit them and not him. So Jesus took on flesh so that he could understand what our struggles were, and that's why the Spirit of God led him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was trying this out. He was learning how to discipline his flesh and keep it under when he was tempted. And as we shared Sunday morning, even ultimately in the garden when he was being pressured and tempted, he still did not give in. And because he did not give in, oh, this gets good. Because he did not give in, he can stand before God representing you as our righteousness. But he understands what it's like to be weak. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, he has become a, a, a faithful high priest. And because of that, we can come with confidence and boldness to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. Why? Because at the right hand of God, who is all-powerful, who cannot understand why we don't get it straight, can't understand why with all we know and all we have and all He's done for us, why we just keep struggling, because He's got sitting in His right hand, His Son who says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to resist. I know what it's like to do that. I know what it's like. And I'm standing in for them. That's what an intercessor is. Someone to make up the gap. But here's the problem. If we don't realize there's a gap, we don't know we need an intercessor. If we think we're plugged into the outlet, if we think we're plugged in and there's power flowing and we're still six feet from the outlet, that's because the light bulb hasn't gone on yet. <laughs> oh, it's because we're so accustomed to the darkness, we can't tell that the light's not on. So we don't know why we need an extension cord. We don't know why we need to be plugged in, because we're just like everything around us. So what's the matter with me? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just like the darkness. Until a light bulb comes into the room that's on. And then we begin to realize, oh, I'm not like that. My light's not on. And that's why we're called to be light to the world. So that they can realize, wait a minute, I see something in you I don't see in me. And begin to open up and realize maybe I'm not plugged in the way I think I'm plugged in. And so unless we realize there's a gap, we have no reason to need, know why we need someone to step in the gap for us. All right. Let's talk now about how generally that applies in prayer, and then we're going to talk about a specific focus to that prayer. Intercessory prayer applies generally to any need that somebody else has other than you, that you are standing in this gap for them. Typically, it's in a situation where somebody, somebody doesn't know, either, either they're not a believer, so they don't have a relationship with God, so they can't go into the throne room of God and plead with Him. So they need somebody who can go in and plead for them, because they can't just go to God with a prayer of faith because they don't have that relationship with Him. So they need somebody that does to go in and represent them there, just like Jesus has gone in and still goes in to represent us when we need Him to. So that means we're intervening on their behalf. Another case in which that happens is you may have somebody that you know, they're a Christian, but they don't know the Word of God the way you do. They don't know that God will deliver them from that. They just think it's something they've got to go through. 
So they've never, they're not even aware that they can exercise their faith and receive that from God. Or maybe they're a brand new Christian. Maybe they just haven't grown yet in faith. And so they need somebody that does know that's what God's Word says to take, exercise their faith on. You know, it's a lot easier to exercise your faith for somebody else that's in pain than when you're in pain. It's a lot easier to exercise your faith for somebody else when they're in need when, than when it's you in need. And so, so that's another case where intercessory prayer is praying for somebody else's need. You're stepping in to their place where they're not able or they haven't or for whatever reason they're not willing to pray to come to God for, for what it is that they need. Now, we have to understand this. That God's ability to move in the lives of other people is affected by certain things. First of all, it's affected by their will. God cannot, will not, and He cannot violate somebody's will. So I thought God could do anything. Yes, He's a sovereign God. But in His sovereignty, He's drawn some boundaries. In his sovereignty, he says, I will not cross the boundary and, and violate your will. If he would, everybody gets saved. He'd just steamroll in over everybody's will and say, you're all saved, let's get out of here, you know, and I'm going to rescue them all from the devil. But he won't do that. He won't do that. So their will's involved. Now this becomes important because in the prayer of faith, you have to believe you received it now. Now, after that point, you're standing, which means you don't keep asking unless you didn't ask in faith. But once you've asked in faith, you don't keep asking because you. why do you keep asking for something you've received? What you begin to do is thank God that it's already yours even though you may not see it yet because you've already received it. But when it comes to praying for somebody else's need, their will may be the problem. So you can't just say, well, Father, I thank you this is done and there will. Amen. Now I'm just going to claim it by faith and that's it. They may not want what you're, they may not want what you're, they know they need. I mean, if we're just talking about getting saved, you know, I don't, why do I need that? I don't want that stuff you want, you, you know, I don't want to be what you are. But your prayers can get God to, God will influence wills. But he won't violate them. But oh, he can influence them. So one of, the, one of the things that affects, this is why we need to step in the gap, because their will's involved. A second thing that's involved is their level of faith about something. Say, well, could you go with me to Mark chapter 6? And see, sometimes we don't know what the problem is. We're praying for somebody, we don't see an immediate answer, and so we can get discouraged and say, well, I guess I didn't pray in faith, or, you know, but it may not be you. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom was it given to him? And such mighty works are performed at his hands. Uh, wait a minute. We remember him. Isn't he this carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and, and, and Judas and Simon? I mean, we know this kid. I know he's grown up, but we remember. No, he's just a carpenter. We saw him as a little kid. We remember. You remember a little Jesus? Good boy. You know, and, and, you know, and aren't there his sisters still living here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. And that's still true to some degree. Look at verse 5. Now he, Jesus, God's Son in the flesh, perfect communion with God, filled perfectly with the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the blind, to deliver anointed by God, filled with the Spirit of God, walking in perfect holiness and righteousness, this Jesus could do no mighty works. He could not do what He wanted to do for His own people. Why? 
He could not do any mighty work there except he lay had hands on a few sickly people and healed them. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. Their unbelief had stopped God from doing what he wanted to do. So listen carefully. Your prayer, if Jesus couldn't override their will or override their unbelief, why do you think your prayers and my prayers can? But what we can do is pray for God, and I'll talk about some of this. We can pray for God to do some things that will begin to give them the opportunity to open. But there's just some people, notice they were offended. Oh, that's one of Satan's number one weapons. They were offended. The Greek word for offense is the same word that's used for trap. You ever seen how they would trap an animal? You know, you stick a box up with a stick like this with a long string. You may have seen a child try to catch a rabbit or something like that. You know, and you put the trap over there and you, you know, put some bait in it and you stay over here like this. And then when that animal gets there, you, you pull a stick out and the, boom, the box falls and you've trapped them. The Greek word for offense is the word for that stick. It means bait. John Bevere wrote a powerful book years ago called The Bait of Satan. It's offense. Why do you think Satan works so hard to get you offended at flesh and blood? Why? Because he knows that's his bait to trap you. Because there's something almost addictive about it. Because it feeds our flesh. It, it feeds a sense of self-justification and a sense of self-righteousness. It feeds the very heart issues that are so critical to God in terms of a pure heart. That's why Jesus said, if, you're, if your enemy despitefully uses you, pray for them. If somebody offends you, pray for them. Why? It is a spiritual force to counteract that spiritual force of offense. They, because they were offended, he couldn't do what he wanted to do until that offense gets pulled down. The fence gets pulled down. And, and then he can begin, then faith can begin because faith cannot exist with offense. You can't be in faith and offended at the same time because next that he calls their offense is unbelief. They're all tied together as a weapon of Satan. So we've looked at the things that, 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 that affect God's ability to do His will in somebody else's life. is their will, their faith, or their unbelief. And the third thing, go to with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And these are things we will talk about probably in some more detail. But I want you to see why, why, the, why there's a gap that people don't realize there's a gap. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled or hidden to those who are perishing, talking about unbelievers, whose minds the God of this world or age, that's Satan, has blinded, so that they will not so that they do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Why don't unbelievers see what you see? Because Satan blinds their spiritual eyes. So, because we are not very spiritually aware, we don't realize with Aunt Susie or Uncle Paul or, you know, whoever it is that you've been praying for, that what's causing them, what's interfering, is spiritual forces demonic forces that are confusing them and blinding their eyes, their spiritual eyes, or diverting their attention so that the light of the truth of the gospel can't get through to them. Our prayers are exercising our spiritual authority in this arena. And God needs... Remember when we studied why God needs us to pray? Because God cannot act in this realm unless he acts through a man, a human being, a man or a woman, exercising his authority here. 
And that comes especially when it comes in interceding for someone else. I want to talk, we'll just maybe not get finished with all this. I want to talk now about the ultimate purpose for intercession, which is really what's on my heart. It applies to all of these areas. And again, the purpose is to stand in the gap between God and people that God cannot make direct contact with and they cannot make direct contact with God because they don't even know He's there or believe He's there. And in their cases, especially people that are not saved unless they're under conviction, they don't know there's a gap. They think they're fine. I mean, you've heard my testimony. I was raised in church, happily married, bumping along, successful in life. I, I didn't, you know, I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I didn't know why I need that stuff. I thought, you know, the things, the Christians I knew, it was for, weak, it was for, for women and weak-minded men. That, that was just the prejudice I had because I was raised with that prejudice until I began to run across people like C.S. Lewis and Charles Coulson, who was the senior partner at a f- large firm across the street from mine before he went to work for President Nixon. If you don't know who he was, he was part of Watergate scandal, got arrested, went to jail, and between the time he was convicted and the time he was sentenced, he got saved. Went into prison, started a prison ministry in there, and became a powerful, powerful preacher of the gospel. This man was a senior partner in a large, famous law firm. It's like, that didn't fit in with my image. And the guy that led him to the Lord was the president and CEO of Raytheon Corporation. This doesn't fit my image. And that's how God began to get through to me. Now, somebody had to be praying for these things to begin to come across my path, for God to begin to get through to me. So the point here is this, is, is for everyone that is not saved, there's, a, there's an enormous gap between God and them. That gap is sin. And it is, so, it is so constituted that in many cases they don't realize there's a gap. So they don't know they have a need. So the first need they have is to realize they have a need. But here's the problem, and unfortunately most of the church doesn't realize this need. And here's the ultimate need. It's to stand in the gap between a holy and righteous God and the people who have provoked His righteous anger and His righteous judgment. So we don't hear a lot about that nowadays. We hear God's a God of love and God's a God of mercy and He is all those things. But we kind of think that what God's mercy means is that because, you know, we've got the sinner over here who's in rebellion and, you know, they're either nasty or they're nice. They're not, I was a nice sinner. There's some of you who are nasty sinners. But we're all still sinners. That's, we're all sinners. See, I was, I was going to hell nice. You were going to hell nasty. But we're still going to the same place. <laughs> the difference is you knew you were nasty. I thought I was nice. So I was more deceived than some of you. So I'm cooking along. I have no idea there's this gap. I think I'm good. I'm a deacon in my church. We're major givers in the church. Five, ten dollars a week on a good day. <laughs> and I'm a successful lawyer. But I was thought we thought I mean we were got a nice, happy family. I mean, we, you know, they looked up to us. I taught in the school church. I did we even preached once on a Sunday. I was spiritually as dead as the pulpit that I was standing behind. But I didn't know that. So I think I'm nice, but I didn't realize how holy God is. He's absolutely holy. So our concept of mercy is that God's holy, and He looks at me over here, and He loves me, but I'm a mess. I think so. But I'm rebellious. Oh, I wasn't rebellious. Yeah, I wanted my way. Don't look at me in that tone. So did you. And some of us still do to some regard. And most of us still do to some regard. And I was a typical New Englander. Don't tell me what to do. Back to my back and stiffen my neck. No, that was a lawyer. I, I, you know, you weren't going to tell me anything to do. You know, as proud. I didn't think I was proud. I thought I was very humble. In fact, I was proud of how humble I was. <laughs> And so were some of you. So my concept of mercy in so many Christians is because God loved me and although he's righteous, he just said, all right, I understand the poor boy, you know, he's, after all, he's only human. 
Man, ten of the times I hear that. He's only human, so I've got to understand his humanness, and because I'm love, I'm just kind of going to accept him where he is, and maybe by accepting him and loving him, I can bring the poor boy along. You know, and eventually, you know, as begins to feel my love and favor, he'll begin to get a little smarter and to get a wiser, and he'll begin to be more like you. And here's the problem with that. Because that's what most of us think, although we might not say that. And if that's true, then there really is no gap here, is there? There really, I've never taught this before, this way. There really is no gap here, because all we've got to do is just keep thanking God, just keep loving them, and I'll keep loving them, we'll all keep loving them, and while we keep loving them, your mercy's going to begin to break through, and they're just going to begin to get closer to you, and eventually they'll take, I'll take this step over, and join your family, and now receive all of your mercy. And if that's the concept we have, there really is no gap, and if there is, God's closing it, because He's merciful. So there's no urgency. Just enough love and enough time and they'll kind of get there. Because after all, God loves them and He's loving and He's merciful and He loves everybody and it's not His will that any should perish. But the problem with that, and of course that's what many of us have done as parents. We've set down rules and standards and then we've looked at the child who didn't live up to them and we've said, well, let's give them another chance. You know, let's kind of be merciful this time. Or what I used to do is, you know, I, I know they were violent, but I kind of looked the other way. So I avoided it, having to deal with the issue. The problem is, if God does what we think He does in that regard, then He's no longer righteous. Because what He's done is compromise His righteousness. And the moment he compromises it the slightest amount, he's no longer holy. So God's got a problem. I mean, the easiest thing was to say, they're a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked turkeys, you know. But because he's love, he couldn't do that. So what is he going to do in order to reach a, cover this gap without compromising who he is? Ah. He's going to take His Son, send His Son to become one of us, cover the gap, take on flesh, and then at the appropriate time, bridge this gap by stretching His arms out on a cross. And on that cross, this holy, righteous God of judgment could pour the judgment and the penalty, and his wrath, and his anger for my rebellion, and your rebellion, on his son. And now that the price is paid, he can forgive us. Not because he changes the standard, but because he paid the price himself. That's why Roman says, and by doing so, listen carefully, he was the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Him. Because if he, if he wavered in His mercy, He could be the justifier, but He'd no longer be just. He'd be like us. And then we'd all be in trouble. So here's the problem. As believers, when we're dealing with a situation with unbelievers... There's this enormous gap between a holy God who's not just holy sitting up here in His holiness, but at some point, at some point, He's got to deal with this rebellion. It's like knowing little Johnny's disobeying. And I'm going to get to him eventually. And if he doesn't stop it, I'm going to have to go in there and spank him. And I hope he's going to stop it before I go. But I know at some point, that's it. I've got to go in there and deal with that. But the Bible tells us, to learn with me over quickly, and we're not going to get anywhere near finished tonight. The second Peter chapter 3. I've never taught this this way before. Some of us, I, I mean, I've, these are things I've seen, but in light of intercession, I've never taught it. Second, Second Peter 
chapter 3. Verse 9. Well, verse 8. Well, (laughs) verse 7. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, we've talked about that word before, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Promise of what? Of judgment. As some count slackness, but He's long-suffering towards us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. So there will come a day. There has to, because if there doesn't come a day, then He's ultimately not righteous. See, it's not just, okay, because they're a bunch of rebellious, unrighteous souls, their their ultimate punishment is, they're not going to get to be with me. No, whether they're ever with Him or not, that has to be judged. Or God's no longer righteous. So here you've got a righteous, holy God who loves them, but at some point, he's got to do something, and you've got a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked people who don't even know they're rebellious and stiff-necked because they're so rebellious and stiff-necked. And such were some of us. And unless someone covers that gap, that judgment has to pour out. Remember what intercession is, standing in that gap. So the purpose of intercession is to stand between God and a people who have provoked His righteous anger and judgment. Because God is a righteous God, He must judge all unrighteousness or He becomes unrighteous Himself. But God's heart and will is that people repent and change their heart so that He can forgive them and He can relent. See, because Jesus has paid for it, doesn't mean all these turkeys over here have received it. And such were some of us. Because you still have to receive the price that was paid instead of trying to do it yourself. And so where they are, he's paid the price. But unbelievers are still over here trying to live their own life, not wanting to surrender to him. And they need somebody to make up this gap for them and to plead their cause to God for Him to do something so they can see where they are and see that there's a gap. Sometimes we're too quick to have people say the sinner's prayer. Because many times we're just focused on, I got them saved. Instead of being sure that they really saw where they were. Saw so that all of the rest of their life, they know to be thankful for what they were saved from. Nowadays, we're so conscious of what we're saving them to, they don't have any awareness of what they were saved from. And if they don't know what they were saved from, it's very tempting to wander back towards what they used to be. In other words, we need a little more fire and brimstone. They need to see the gap. But we as believers need to see the gap. Somebody's got to stand up for God and plead to God for their cause to open their eyes to see the gap, to bind Satan up so that he stops confusing their eyes and blinding their eyes and to, to pray on their behalf so that somebody can come across their path and share just the right word and the Spirit of God can be released to do what he's got to do. God wants to do that, but he can't because remember, he needs a man. He needs a man. We're going to have to end here. We'll pick up here next time and begin to get into it a little more. But God's heart is crying. I've paid the price. I've given my own son's life. 
but I can't give it to them. They can't receive it until they see that they need it. And you've heard me share this. With all that I'd loan, all that I thought I was all had everything set, even religiously set, sitting in my living room one night, going through Matthew's the Sermon on the Mount. And I probably had read it before, but it was the anointing of the Spirit because somebody had prayed. The anointing of the Spirit, suddenly my eyes opened. When I hit the verse, be ye perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And I saw the gap. I saw what God required of me. And when I saw what God required of me, I saw how far away from that I was and how helpless I was. And you've heard me say this before. The words that sprung out of my mouth when I saw that is, I can't do that. I need someone to save me. And when I heard my own words, suddenly Jesus came off that cross and into my heart that night. Suddenly he became my savior because I saw why I needed him to be my savior and not just the savior of the world. But that couldn't happen until somebody bridged that gap in prayer so that my eyes could be open. It didn't take much, but all it took was some, that glimmer to see. And the moment I saw it, I realized the enormous gap that I couldn't make up. And that's when I saw Jesus as my mediator, as my intercessor. I needed someone to make up that gap and that I could receive him as the one that did that for me. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you to open our eyes to see what's going on spiritually in this tremendous, this tremendous endeavor that you call us to, to intercede for loved ones, to intercede for those that are in need, but especially to intercede for the lost. It's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Father, open our eyes to see the role we have to play. Why you so desperately need us to step in that gap in prayer and do what you can't do what you need us to do. Continue to give us the confidence and the boldness that you will hear what we pray. And we thank you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.